everyone. Welcome to I Am CRN Friends. I am Nicole Stewart and I am your host today. This podcast is ran by the International Association for Media and Communication Research. The organization promotes media and communication research throughout the world, addressing socio-political, technological, policy, and cultural processes. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with James Compton, and I am very excited to be here today with you, James. James is an associate professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario. He was a longtime member and president and past president of the Canadian Association of the University of Teachers, has a lot of interest in labor, and not surprisingly, his research interests are in political communication and political economy of news media and popular culture. He is also the author of The Integrated News Spectacle, A Political Economy of Cultural Performance. His work has appeared in academic journals like The Political Economy of Communication, Media, Culture and Society, Canadian Journal of Communication, Journalism Studies and Journalism Theory, among others. Welcome, James. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here with my dog, Bo, at my feet. So that's <laughs> with your dog, Bo. If we hear barking, we know who it is. That's it's right. just because he wants to join our academic chatter. That's right. <laughs> I want to ask you, James, how did you become interested in political communication, political economy? We were just riffing a little bit off of the commoditization and marketization and neoliberalization of the university structure. So how, how did this all become interesting to you? Um, it's actually a much longer story, which I'll try to make shorter. But um, it, be, it began uh, in a former life. I was a reporter, <laughs> uh, a radio and TV and print reporter. And, um, uh, and in the early 90s, why, and I worked in private radio and and uh, got a job in a unionized station. I noticed that it was much different uh, when I was unionized. And I, you know, I had lots of experiences. I, I learned firsthand that the advertising department didn't want me to do certain things. I had a, a boss very uh, in the old social credit days, BC listeners will, will know about those things. But um, I was concerned about my socialist tendencies. And he was, you know, he was very kind about it. And but I had these pressures, and I noticed that there are these pressures. And then, um, when I got to the so-called big smoke after private radio and things in Vancouver at Canadian Press and Broadcast News, it was the early '90s, and I didn't want. To, I had no idea. I didn't think I was going to be a professor. I had my BA. I was going to be a reporter, and I was. And um, the job started drying up, so I was doing well. And uh, I was on contract, and it looked like I was going to be on contract forever. And then, you know, I was the last person to uh, staff the evening broadcast news desk in Vancouver at the Vancouver Bureau. I was the last person to staff the weekend desk in Vancouver. And <laughs> everything was retrenching. And so before I'd read David Harvey and all these things, I understood. Uh, in a visceral way, uh, precarity of labor and the demands of flexibility and and when and its effect on news and and so uh, when I uh, decided to go and do an MA with no intention of going on to do a PhD at Simon Fraser, <laughs> um, I was exposed to all these things in a political economy, which uh, started answering. A lot of the questions I'd had and experienced. So that's the 
longer version of why I initially got into it. It came out of my work experience, both yeah. in private media and uh, or you know the Canadian press, but also in unionized and non-unionized uh, workspaces. I think a lot of communication scholars start in the field and then recognize some of the tensions theoretically and want to dive into them a bit more. You wrote this great paper for IMCR, and I wanted to talk to you today about this work. It was titled Notes Towards a Materialist Understanding of Progressive Solidarity. Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of what this article is? Well, um, I guess it's just I, I started thinking about um, what the what are the the question basic question is what are the material conditions potentially to enact some form of progressive solidarity and i asked that question because i look around and you know i don't see much of it <laughs> i see fragmentation i see the left fighting among each other and in my work uh, as a you know uh, proudly union boss uh, in the academic sector, you know, my job was to try and build solidarity and, and among academics, uh, as our uh, listeners will appreciate, it's very difficult to get academics to agree on anything and to come together. <laughs> and so I was working on that. And so, and I was thinking broadly and I thought, okay, how do we, in this fragmented uh, space, you know, what are the material conditions? Um, because uh, a lot of people I was reading more popularly, a lot of books came out kind of in post-Trump, blaming Trump, um, and some people talking about, you know, fake news and the post-truth era and all these things. And I thought, well, that's not really quite it. Like, all, there's lots of that stuff going on. Trump's a problem. So-called fake news, which is a, another discussion, uh, is a problem. But when I was reading people like Lee McIntyre and some others, and but in these quick books that came out that sold really well, there was a kind of the usual tropes, like the, the conditions of capitalism were never questioned. Mm -hmm. Instead, we, we point the finger often at the professorial class. Oh, it's all those left-wing professors teaching uh, post-structuralism and post-modernism. And, you know, and which was unsatisfactory, shall we say, right? So, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's not it. And um, and so what, but what's causing this fragmentation? What's going on? And so, um, and I was like many people, um, not alone. I was sure that Trump, Trump would not win. And then he did. Mm -hmm. And so that forced me to rethink. It took me, you know, it put me on a journey to rethink why that happened. And that, so, that sent me on this longer quest. One of the things we know in this sphere is that it doesn't seem to matter whether it's liberal or conservative. This so-called post-truth era is being blamed by Trumpism. But I think we can look back further and see that these kind of fake news indicators are, are along a historical timeline. But maybe you can help us situate how and why this location of politics have become unstable or fragmented to borrow your words that you're using right now. Yeah, well, that's a that's the whole paper, but I'll try to kind of, <laughs> yes, and, and I only <laughs> sketch it, but like, um, yeah, so there's a lot of things, like things are unstable, right? People don't agree 
on lots of things, but it was really 40 years in the making, if you think about it. Um, uh, you know, there, what, one of the things that neoliberalism has done is um, it, there's a new consensus or that, that emerged, but uh, the post-war consensus uh, was around, you know, the, uh, the idea that the state could build institutions uh, that, uh, that were intended to reduce inequality, right? You know, public ownership, social insurance, uh, progressive taxes, and all of that, like the shorthand of it, over 40 years was unraveled through a deliberate, a very deliberate attempt on the right, very successful one, to implement policies of privatization and deregulation across the board. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the shorthand of it. And so I, I think that's really what happened. And that the, and that, so we're, we were encouraged and in fact, you know, kind of pushed into seeing the individual as the font of everything. And that, the, you know, Maggie Thatcher famously mm -hmm. said, there's no such thing as society, only yes. individuals. That's the logical extension mm -hmm. of it. Now, I think a lot of people will also fold this into disinformation, which you rightly connected to. But th something I thought that you did was really interesting is you talk about this incoherence of publics. Can you expand on that idea? Incoherence of publics. Yeah, so um, like the people can't, like increasingly there's, um, maybe I, can, I like to tell stories. Can you, can I just back up with a yeah. story? Yeah, So please. I have a dog, I have a hen, <laughs> dog. And when I was really busy, Bo had to go to the kennel five days a week. When I was in the car taking him to the kennel, I was going around the radio stations, including satellite stations, listening to everybody, CBC, right, um, MSNBC, CNN, and Patriot Radio uh, on like, the, the far right stuff. And so when I went there, I started to, to see that like, oh my God, like this is a completely different semiotic space. Yes. Right? Nobody's speaking. That's when I first lit up. I said, oh, right. Like these people are not speaking to other groups, right? They're just speaking to themselves. Yeah. They've, and, they've enveloped themselves in their own little homophilia network and they're just allowing that space to exist. Right. And what was also interesting, I noted, is that they had the same kind of, you know, they had their own story, like it may have been factually incorrect and, and unsupportable, right? Through if you look at the evidence, but they had a, a narrative of the sacred and profane, just as the liberal left does, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what's good and bad, and right? And who benefits and who does not. And they were always the victims, right? Like, and and so, and the usual suspects, you know get get blamed uh you know feminists you know um liberal you know we can go down down the list but it was a it was a story that if you stayed within that semiotic space was rational in the sense that it like if, if, right, there was a rationality scare, within, scare within quotes that on, on the word rational right like big okay. scare quotes 
but it there was a coherence to it if you accepted all these premises which were you know very debatable and right and and if you ignored a lot of facts and but it but that's the world in which they were speaking to each other and acting mm -hmm. and um and so um there's no there it was very clear that you know speaking like to these folks was going to be very difficult and you know the old assumptions of liberal pluralism were not holding yes. right like cuz there's no there was no common space in which people could talk things out so right? was this was this indicative of the covid-19 pandemic has it been amplified is it is it aggravating the situation or simply maintaining it? How is how is the COVID-19 pandemic yeah. impacting this? Yeah, I'm not new on this, but I think lots of people have talked about how it's been a great amplifier. So there's all sorts of social problems that pre-existed COVID and they became amplified and more visible, right? So all sorts of social inequalities, right? And so like um, the way I like to think about it, you know, we all remember in the early weeks, first couple of months of COVID, when it all kind of came crashing down, it was all kind of unsettling. And, you know, people were out in the streets banging pots and the phrase, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. I was always, you know, kind of spitting up my lunch because it was clear that we weren't all in it together because people like me and, you know, so white collar professionals could continue to work at home through Zoom, et cetera. But meanwhile, the people stacking the shelves in our, our supermarkets had to keep going to work. Healthcare workers had to keep going to work. And they were unprotected at that point, right? There were no vaccines. And, um, and you know, uh, many of these folks were not, you know, there were no pay bumps for them. There was no danger break. There was no, uh, and in many jurisdictions, um, no uh sick leaves paid sick leaves right and so there's all all these things it was very clear that that was like all that became super visible it was always there right all these cleavages uh many of these people working these jobs were uh, people of color right all these things all these already existing inequalities were kind of came were lifted up yeah. and, and surfaced in a way that became much more visible. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so people started talking about them, became part of the popular discourse. But if you look around, governments didn't do anything about it. And yeah. they still have it. Yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> you situate your theoretical framework for the paper around this idea of progressive solidarity. And in particular, you use Alexander, and someone who I, I like a great deal, E.P. Thompson, I've read this book, The Origins of the English Working Class, and they talk about this, uh, these food riots in England in this book and the sort of the spasmodic moment here where there's uh, tension around labor. Uh, and you don't specifically cite that, but I think that's kind of the same idea as where you're going with it. So how do you use these, these sort of theoretical frameworks to situate progressive solidarity? Yeah, well, I guess I was... Um... So that was my question, as I said off the top, you know, how do we build, what are the material conditions of a progressive solidarity, which I saw as being weak. Um, and so I started looking around for, uh, you know, ways of 
of thinking about it. And it's historically, what happened to build progressive solidarity? And so uh, E.P. Thompson, as you mentioned in, in the origins of the uh, English working class, like it's a big book, as you know, right? Like it's super long. So, <laughs> but, um, and so detailed and all these things, but, um, but what I really liked about it, um, again, with the stories he told, and, um, you know, like, and he was looking for and, and, and searching for the, the social contradictions that emerged that, uh, and that, and the popular cultures that emerged that helped working people kind of form a sense of solidarity and a collective sense of, of belonging together and who was opposed to them. So, um, like, so in the, in the late, you know, he situates it in the late 18th century, these so-called friendly societies started forming. And these were like popular societies. So um, that, you know, men would come together. Uh, so not just in the workplace, but, you know, they could sing, dance, swap stories, but also read to each other, debate, all these things. And so the, a sense of a, a popular traditions and, and organizational forms were there, Thompson argues, um, prior to the, the Industrial Revolution in which the, the workplace contradictions and exploitations took place. And when that did, um, you know, those experiences and uh, shared understandings of the social contradictions led workers over time to conceive of themselves you know that we could have a collective alternative to the status quo of of you know and we could have something called socialism hmm. right? that, that's the, the short version of it like you know it's over a thousand yes <laughs> so i condense quite a bit but that's you know that's the that's gist the synthesis of it. you've done a great job synthesizing that when we talk about the social contradictions of our modern day of the since you know say the great recession in 2009 what are those markers that you turn to in the paper yeah well um you know like many people uh you know the great recession happened and i saw like things started like this is different right and um and then it was shortly after that that popular opposition movement started to emerge. First, most notably Occupy, which became global, right? And then, uh, you know, I don't know more in Canada, uh, the, the, what people call the movement of the squares, some people call it like, so globally, you know, things were happening, right? There were, there were popular mobilizations around the globe against, uh, you know, the inequities of neoliberal capitalism, globalized neoliberal capitalism. And so lots of people have written about that, right? Um, and then of course, more recently, Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, hashtag me too. I think they're all like of a piece, like in, in like things, uh, it started to indicate to many people, not just me, that the old order, the old assumptions that had held for a long time, no longer did. Mm -hmm. And so if they're yeah, no longer ahead. holding, how are you pulling in work like Nancy Fraser and Jurgen Habermas, 
in this in this context? Yeah, well, um, so uh, yeah, I've been teaching a course on the public sphere for a long time, and um, and so, gee, how do I? It's a lot, right? So <laughs> it's a lot, but like so. Um, Famously, Nancy Fraser wrote this, this seminal essay, Critiquing Habermas, and I always get mm -hmm. it. It's brilliant, and I always encourage people to, you know, write like her, because she's great. But um, but so I've been uh, dealing with that, but I guess let's think, think of it this way, is that, um, so she's a, a critic of Habermas, but she doesn't say that he's totally wrong. She just modifies him, right? So, and so uh, Habermas talks about system and life world, you know, so system world being kind of the logics of bureaucracy and capital efficiencies. You know, how do you how do you get something done more super efficiently? The ends already understood. Instrumental forms of reason, whereas the life world, the world of communicative action, the world of more open democratic forms of communication, is the space in which we can determine. Uh, what we ought to do? What are the normative ideals that we want to follow? How do we want to organize society? That's kind of the broad movement. And so Fraser takes that framework. She doesn't actually say system and life world, but she's she know you know she doesn't need to. But and she looks at this interregnum, take following Gramsci, mm -hmm. the word that he uses. The interregnum is was when we just discussed how the common sense assumptions that were unchallenged for many years, now were. And we just went through the list. Occupy, right? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, hashtag, you know, all those things. All sorts of things are being challenged. And um, so what, what's behind that, like, unsteadiness, like, materially? Well, um, so it's not a, like a direct causal. I'm trying to like, and neither is she, she's she's saying like, look, the 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 old order, the neoliberal order, is unraveling, and she's not the only one who's talked about this. But I like the way that she she approaches it, mm -hmm. um, and that these movements are one indicator of that, right? And so, what's happening? Well, you know, in the system world logic of neoliberal cap globalized capital, which powers devolved to banks, financial institutions like the IMF, um, you know, and this general, she like actually doesn't use the word neoliberal as much, she used financialized capital, which is a, a good term. It's actually maybe a better term. It depends on, on, on your point of view. But there's a, a, a shift, a power shift. States lose the ability to enact public policy because of the power of the financial system, which, which restricts them, because of the ability of capital, capital to move globally and, and affect uh, labor, right? Use labor from abroad, globalized capital does this, uh, suppressing uh, wages globally. Mm -hmm. um, all sorts of things are going on. And at the same time, so um, the tension comes on that that uh, you any political system needs to deliver, right? Be kind of efficiently in some ways. Like you know, you know, the cliche aside, anybody like I have 
who didn't, when they didn't have a car, had to stand and wait for a bus that never came, can appreciate the efficiencies of buses and trains running on time, right? Like, so you yes. need, like, there's some sort of efficiencies that are important to administer. At the same time, though, um, there's a lack of political legitimacy that becomes very clear. Needs no. are not being met. Political aspirations are not being met. People don't feel they have a say anymore, right? And so uh, a crisis, this contradiction emerges as a crisis of, of legitimation. There's a legitimation crisis that erupts and we start to see opposition movements of various stripes emerge. That's the kind of the, the, the shorthand version of it. So as these tensions are bubbling, like yeah. almost about to explode, we start to see things like the viral video of George Floyd's death mm -hmm. and the police violence and the, the protests against this sort of racist movement at this time. How is this connecting to labor issues and sort of this broad argument that you're making? Yeah, I guess because that's a long story, right? So, um, uh, because the George Floyd thing is interesting. I'm, I'm borrowing from the work of John Thompson here, who's done a lot of work on this stuff. And he talks about the new visibility. He's been writing about this for a long time. And then he, like, before he wrote about the internet, right? So, yes. And so, like, these, these you know, um, uh, like, it was, it begins with the kind of the, the use of video cameras and then the, you know, and then they get upload and then they become, things become visible that didn't used to be visible, right? Police beatings like things. And then so, but it's a broader trend that gets updated into the internet and social media where people have the means to produce media and then it then becomes distributed in a, in, uh, in a much more uh, fragmented way. Right? Mm -hmm. And then eventually, um, um, despite you know the hurrahs, you know many you know people, I always thought they were wrong, and certainly it's been proven to be the case. You'll recall that uh, the internet was celebrated, and, and it was going to bring in pure uh, libertarian democracy. Well, how'd that work out? Right, like not so great. Right, so, so turns out there's all sorts of bad actors out there. Yes. And we haven't even talked about the far rights. In <laughs> also, I, I, I listed the earlier, I listed the progressive movements. I should have listed at the same time, you know, there were a far right subaltern groups that were formed. Yes. Yes. Uh, That's a whole and, other podcast, James. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'll have to bring you back on for that. Yes. What are What are the implications of your work? What can we take away? What do you want us to know? Oh dear. Um, well, I guess um, you know we're a long way away from um, the friendly societies of E.P. Thompson, right? In this fragmented media space where people, uh, it, it's and it's. I think it's important to emphasize that um, it's it's not my argument, and 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 the people I'm borrowing from are not making the argument that you know the technology is to blame. The technology is reflecting or reinforcing already existing social cleavages. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. my argument. And, and so we, you know, how do we 
how do we build solidarity in that environment? So it's not going to be overnight, right? Yes. Would be my my first point. Um, so you need to do something now, and so you need to, but you need to organize, right? People need to organize and build. I think we need to strengthen unions, like mm -hmm. number one. But um, you know, we need more broadly. I think um, you know if we're going to uh, combat the, the, the wild conspiracy theories that are circulating. You know, why are people believing in these things? Well, it's, it's not a like people come to believe. It's not a cognitive thing. It's like you know, like Trump. He was full of nonsense. Like Boris Yeltsin, uh, or. Uh, uh, was also, um, you know, like the whole Brexit thing was, or Johnson, not Yeltsin, sorry, Boris Johnson and, and Brexit. Lots of lies, lots of nonsense. Same with Trump. In the Canadian version, Pierre Polyev is circulating a lot of things that make no sense, but they feel like they do. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. Right? Yeah. Right? They and speak there's some conspiracy an literature. Anxiety, oh, a shared. I was no, going to say, no, there's, there's conspiracy literature that says, you know, people are pulling into them. They're anchoring into these sort of super conspiracies because they're building one conspiracy off of another, A, and B, because there's some line of truth somewhere in there that they anchor Precisely. into and then build around. Precisely. There's always a kernel of truth, right? Um, well, unless you're talking about QAnon, which is just like... You know, <laughs> that's, that's just really another, Like, you know, you know, bracket that. But... But, but you know, there's some pretty wild stuff going on out there. But but there's a but what I guess is like one of the things that I've been searching for uh, that I didn't mention off the top was I was searching for what's the structure of feeling using Raymond Williams' work, mm -hmm. and the structure of feeling today it seems is one of ang deep anxiety and shared trauma, mm -hmm. and so the left needs to have a story that builds on that and points to why that is the case and away from uh, these conspiracy theories. But it's not simply discourse too. This is a key thing for me because if we need to build the material conditions, we need, and I'm, I really think that this is the part that's gonna take a long time because it took 40 years to unravel it, right? Yes. It's gonna take a few decades to rebuild some form of, uh, of a, socialized state that takes serious social reproduction and there's been and here i'm borrowing from a lot of feminist political economy like we need uh we need uh if we're going to address precarity and the anxiety that people feel uh we need uh you know universal uh, child care right we need better transportation um we need uh better health care you know, we need all these things that many people have been, you know, we need, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff that we used to have in, you know, it wasn't perfect, but things have been eroded. Mm -hmm. And um, I really do believe that, and this is borrowing from, you know, Nancy Fraser, or Ursula Hughes. Uh, these are people, political economists who have been talking for many years about the importance of social reproduction in political economy. And I think we could learn a lot from that. And I I don't have the, you know, quick answer to how do we get there, but I the, the one word I'd say is we need to organize yes. and build 
build oppositional factions that will force the state to take social, uh, you know, these social needs seriously once again, and and not simply as a performative uh, representation, like really give people something. Thank you, James. What a fascinating conversation we have today. <laughs> I've absolutely enjoyed every minute of it. I really appreciate you sharing your work and coming on here today and talking to all of us. Do you have one final note that you want to extend to communication scholars? What should we be oh, oh researching? Oh, you know, well, you know, the usual follow your bliss. But I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't have, you know, people, we need a range of people following different things would be, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't have the, I'm not the font of knowledge on that. Yes. I, but I think, I hope we can get more people working on building solidarity. Uh, I know there's lots of people thinking about it now. Um, and uh, I'm just one person trying to think more broadly about it. And I guess um, I hope to continue looking at you know how do we build stronger associations and institutions that can uh, contribute to a shared focus and project for everyone everyone <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much such a great feedback thanks for coming oh well thanks for having me you're most welcome. Just a note to the listener, there are more IAMCR and Friends podcasts available on basically all the podcast services, but including Apple Music and Spotify. Thanks so much for listening.